Welcome to Stories from the Atlantic, where in this episode we will focus on art through an unusual event held on Residential Street in downtown Reykjavik, the people who organized it, and finally, a talk with a leading figure when it comes to talking about art in Iceland. But we start on a mild grey April afternoon on Klapparstur, a street known as the location of the gallery Berg Contemporary and the former location of the I-8 Gallery, now located downtown next to luxury tourist departments and a fur shop on one side, noodle shop and demolition on the other. But on May 20th of 2018, art was being performed and shown in an unknown location on Klapparstur. I made my way to number 12, where on the third floor of an old red building near the art university, a multi-performance happening was happening. The balcony was full of small talk, wine and cigarettes in hand, while the narrow corridors of the third floor apartment led to the various performances within the otherwise normal apartment settings. I made my way directly into a bedroom where a young man was spooning male visitors, gently asking them about their feelings and state of mind, heartbreak and sorrow. Drinkurin Finkurin, an artist's name, performing a three-hour performance, Spoonlest, was wearing a terrifying yet simple mask that reminded me of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Weirdly at odds with the sweet, comforting nature of his performance, a soft opposite of the chauvinistic voice coming from the TV, that of an American self-help guru, teaching the art of seducing women. As I lay in his embrace, eating complimentary popcorn and trying not to think too hard about what the performance expected of me, a smoke alarm started beeping, drowning out both the pickup artist and the poetry reading on the balcony. In the living room, a snug little alcove under the rafters of the roof, Loye Leo Gunnarsson sat with a smoke alarm to his ear, trying to whistle its exact tone. His attempts were barely audible, but that didn't matter. This was art, a damned good art. The performances all had schedules, some overlapping, like the poetry reading of Sigrun Gida Sveinstotter on the balcony, simply titled, Which is more tragic, waiting on social media for someone to take interest in knowing the real you, or longing for the weekend to get drunk, go to the club, hoping to find someone that wants to spend time with you. And the two-minute smoke alarm performance, titled Bleep. On the other side of the living room, a few minutes later, Monica Kipurit sat down, as in some 18th-century Balstovelestur, a reading from the Bible while the household worked dark winter nights. They buy a charming house. Real estate value goes up. Except here it was spring, and the reading was called Happy Endings by Margaret Atwood, a straightforward narration of various relationship scenarios, including happiness and fulfillment, lack of, but eventually, death. John and Mary dies. John and Mary dies. The living room had moments earlier been the location for a performance by Klav Lipins titled Handyman, where he sat with an electric whisker tied to his head, leaning forward to stir a bowl of dough, resulting in food stuff flying around. Later he performed in the bedroom, where he stood blindfolded with a hammer tied to his head, attempting to knock on nails on a board, while a group of ten or so sat on the floor in bed, intently watching the progress which was likely not measured by the same standards as home improvement. 
This, of course, was art, as well as the video installation of Bronte Jones called Park Selfie, shown in the kitchen, and the works of Sion Prior, A Tear in My Crotch. I'm not one to perceive art through conceptualizing, philosophizing, or even wording much about what I've seen, so I left the performances at the end, simply feeling good, having seen something unusual. Outside, the street was its usual self, a mix of expensive, fixed-up downtown real estate with the occasional dilapidated buildings and the constant presence of tourism, either in rental cars or the sound of wheeled luggage. The show had been organized as part of a course which included students from the Art University of Iceland and the University of Iceland. Sixteen students had organized the exhibition and we will have all their names on our website, but in the high-ceilinged library of the Art Museum of Reykjavik, I met up with four of them, namely... Uh, so I'm Sophie, Sophie Durand from Perth, Australia. Uh, Anna-Maria Ingebergsdóttir, Iceland. Uh, I'm Patricia Carolina from Mexico. Thordur Tusan Alisson from Izmir, Turkey. And we spoke about the choice of location for the exhibition, meaning a private home. We came up with this idea to have a home, shared home. Uh, exhibition. We really wanted to exhibit in not a conventional place. Something that was very human and much more on a human level and much more integrated into the world. For me it was a very big opening for the like using a daily life and you know just a um, normal space as an exhibition place you know that we didn't need to go into a whole studio or a gallery or you know something that's just designed for the art. Though unconventional spaces might free you from some of the limitations of the white gallery space or how to look at art in such spaces, the apartment as art space did entail its own challenges. They were asking itself, their self if the pieces or all the things in the house were art or not art, you know? Mm -hmm. like. And it was more like, you know, we were at the beginning, we were at the door and we welcomed them and... It was more like just going into a dinner party, like... People felt like they were more home, like, because it was in a home space. So people were like, oh, okay, I'm going to someone's place. People were a bit confused about yeah. the show as well. Yeah. They didn't quite... It was never framed in our marketing. But presenting art in this way makes it a part of a bigger whole, in a way, interacting with the city. It sit within the framework of the city and the community in a way that meant that it was its own thing in its own entity and it became something more than an exhibition. It was kind of part of part of the everyday and this kind of uncertainty. My interest was not only in the exhibition itself, but the various aspects and ideas it related to, and so I guided the conversation to the overarching topics. Among them is the curation of art. In this case, a responsibility shared by 16 individuals, four of whom I asked what curating entails in their mind. Because I think um, the way curator put things together changes the way you see things, you know. He takes care, he takes care of artists. He cures the yeah. art. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he cures the um, art, yeah. Bring it into the world in the way that's best for it, contextualize it. I think the curator's job is to contextualize and framework, not to say that artists don't do that. It's not just a shoe artist, yeah. like random, is to make a dialogue between them and then 
uh, a link with people. I've never studied art, aside from one course in anthropology, and so had no idea of the actual role of curator. Part of me thought of a curator being a mix between a manager, friend, marketer, philosopher, bank, critic, listener, but then again, that might just say more about how demanding I would be as an artist. In some ways, you could say the curator is a DJ of art. Sophie laid out her view of the show, its success from a curational or curatorial standpoint. For me, it exceeded my expectations, and I think that's much to do with the artists and how those works interacted and how the works that were rethought of Sigrun Gidas and Drengeren Fengerens, how they were reworked for that space and how they began to strengthen in dialogue with Sean and Bronte's work and Loy Leo and, and Klaus and how everything organically tapped into a greater infrastructure and heightened things and exaggerated things. And Monica's work, that was another extreme as well. Our conversations touched on various topics of art, including the importance of getting outside of your own space. I let that sentence hang before clarifying, as it can relate to so many things, but we discussed the importance for artists to go abroad, something that Patricia and Sophie were in the middle of, being from Mexico and Australia. But Thordur had his own halfway experience of it, having been born and raised in Turkey, living in Iceland for the last years. I think I really agree the fact that we need that hiccup to go outside, you know, because, um, art, I mean, Iceland is just, full of possibilities when it comes to creativity you know you get so much out of Iceland when you want to be creative when you want to create something um, you can just get lost in Iceland by just you know in your ideas but but there's always something different when you go abroad there's always something that you have never felt or seen and I think that's important to have that sometimes it's even just a slap on the face you know that sometimes it, it is all about experiences or experimenting new things you also have so many people coming in and going out which kind of you don't really I mean it kind of makes you feel like you don't really have to leave to see new things the history of Icelandic artists going abroad is closely linked to artists coming to Iceland the latter arrived before the departure of Icelanders to places like Copenhagen, Paris and London. From the 18th century, foreign travellers, a mix of tourist, adventurer, scholar and often artist, came to Iceland in search of historical sites relating to the sagas, as well as more general travels. Both commonly included an artist that would sketch or paint or make poetry about the landscapes and people they met. William Collingwood, Sir John Stanley and William Morris are but a few of those that portrayed their travels through some sort of artistic representation. It wasn't until the late 19th century and early 20th century that Icelandic artists began going abroad, including Master Kervar, Iceland's most iconic painter, at the start of the 20th century. To paint a grim picture of the status artists had in Iceland, the name Solon Islandus, the artist's name of Sölve Helgason, in the 19th century, speaks volumes as he roamed the country, defining himself as an artist, breaking the laws of fixed habitation. Though poets had been esteemed during the Viking periods, invited to the court of kings in Europe, commissioned for poems immortalizing the rulers of the time, being an artist was, for much of Iceland's history, not even in the vocabulary. 
Aside from materials being scarce, there was no real market, no kings or court or wealthy patrons to speak of. The landscape painting came late to Iceland, even later than photography, but it was with the work of people like Kjarval, Ásmundur Sveinsson, Nina Tryggvadóttir and others, educated partly abroad, that art rose to a new level. The 20th century saw the rise of various art movements, which landed in Iceland, carried by names of groups and individuals, SUM, S-U-M, being a pretty big name, in the Icelandic version of modern art movements. It's parallel to it's a parallel movement to Fluxus yeah. that happened yeah. a little bit after, but it was based in Amsterdam. Because Sigurdur, Christian and Hreit, they moved to Amsterdam. Because of Dieter Roth. Because of Dieter Roth. The Zoom group related to the Fluxus movement included names like Sigurdur Guðmundsson, Hreit Friðfinnsson, Ólafur Guðmundsson, and then the link with Dieter Roth, who moved to Iceland in the 60s, worked in design, and made his mark in so many ways, a subject for a whole episode, but we will include some insightful links on our webpage. But it would take a few more decades until Iceland was firmly introduced onto the international scene, and then through music. She broke the glass of everything, I think. And Sigurós, yeah. But like, Björk, she, she did a lot by contributing everything. She brought Iceland to the world, like that we are not a small island, we are big, so people know because of Björk. Björk did bring Iceland to the world, but had done so before with the band Sugar Cubes, who had toured with U2 and made an international impression. But the performance, the painting, the song, the photograph, the sculpture, all represent the finished work. So I asked about the messy details behind the Klappastur 12 performance event, including what they had worried about before the show. Is anybody going to actually show up? Yeah, me too. You know? Shoes. Oh, the shoes, shoes were so <laughs> shut up because the carpet there, you know? Uh, is it going to get done on time? I, I felt so happy that it was over. I felt so happy that we did this all together because being in a very big group and actually making something out of it, I think that was success. And Because we never really argued about things, never. you know, we, we've, it was a very easy group to work with and everybody really deserved the credit. Our conversation went far and wide, flowing freely across borders, names of artists and curators like Hans Ulrik Olbrich and a few others, which we will name on our website. Patricia told of the perception of the artist-curator relationship in Mexico being seen as more confrontational and Thorudur spoke of how it was harder to make a mark on the art scene in Turkey, needing a bigger name to get exhibited and noticed than in Iceland. There were a few exceptions to the easy flow of conversation, which related to the fact that they were all young and rather new on the art scene, without the authority, knowledge or experience to comment on some things, and then the issue of possibly burning bridges by mistake. Mentioning this is not to make it the main point in an otherwise fertile conversation, but it's a healthy reminder that every part of a society has its own power structure and nuances that take time to navigate. What stood out was the various ways art could be experienced, shared, created and thought about through the artists, the curators, the spaces and ideas. It was a few weeks later that I went to a lunch talk, without the lunch, where I heard a man speak fearlessly against the alienating language of some curators in relation to a photographic exhibition held at the Reykjavik Photography Museum. 
Guðmundur Oddur Magnússon og Goddur as he's known has been involved in the Icelandic art scene for decades, studied graphic design in Vancouver, is a research professor at the Art Academy of Iceland, associates with leading artists, documents the scene, has offered support and guidance to many, and was now attacking what he considered to be a barrier to experiencing art. His conclusion was to be honest in one's perception and experience of art, almost childlike and without the fear often instilled through hard-to-grasp curatorial texts. Half an hour later, we sat in his large, loft-like studio, where we dove directly into the various aspects of the Icelandic art scene. We discussed the nationalistic period leading up to the independence from Denmark in 1944, when symbols like the mountain lady had represented the fight against monarchy for a republic, a prominent symbol in the language of art of that time. Landscape paintings also conveyed the state of the nation during hard times, as with starving horses in bad weather, referring to economic hardships of the 30s. But before the change from nationalism to internationalism in art after World War II, there were gatekeepers that stood in the way of abstract art, especially Jonas Frau Ripple. He was the cultural minister of Iceland, and he, he did this exactly he had the same kind of, uh, of aesthetical taste as uh, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, and Jonas Ripple. They had the same uh, aesthetical taste. They all uh, uh, took uh, abstract paintings, and, 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 uh, and uh, they had uh, public shows of how ugly and degenerated this was. And 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 uh, and they hated it when 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 artists started to do abstract paintings and or 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 using making poetry without rhyming and things like this. And then after the Second World War, people were fighting against uh, nationalism and used uh, uh, means of art to become international and using trying to find the Esperanto of visual language by using uh, uh, basic forms from a big art movement from uh, after, the, after the First World War from Bauhaus movement and, and we started to have art schools and these art schools were totally against mainstream um, uh, uh, currents in art of, uh, of landscape paintings and, and of, uh, of uh, of a nationalistic nature, and then again, when the when the hippie movement started with the pop art and, and conceptual art, more or less all art was really political and, and against the establishment, and so political that the, that the art museums they never bought anything from these young people from from the 60s and 70s. It was not until 30 years after they started to collect these uh, these paintings. A name that crosses over both periods, from the early 20th century to his death in 1972, is Johannes Kjarval, one of the pillars of Iceland's art history. And although he was not part of the excluded artists, he did break boundaries and moved closer to abstract art in his landscape paintings, especially those of Thingvellir National Park. And how he paints lava and does it in, 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 a, in a foggy rain and not at all with sunshine or, or this sort of uh, creamy images of Iceland in tourist brochures today. And, you know, uh, and also he sort of had the guts to be himself. Kjarval became the gold standard of the 20th century, owned by banks and institutions and those that wanted to show a sophisticated wealth. His character, as his paintings, was unique. And the stories of his unusual behavior are many, including him walking into a bank, asking for stationery paper, then sketching on it, signing it, and giving it to the young lady working there, saying, for you, my dear. Or when he hurled profanities at the editor of a big newspaper and the prime minister, who saw him painting in the countryside, and thought they'd go and say hello. Or when 
he, in his 80s, sailed a rowboat down a river to the Arctic Ocean. May art history forgive me for jumping over so many important names, periods and groups, landing at a period closer in time. What we call in Icelandic people who sort of came about into this world around 2000, and we call them in Icelandic the Krut generation or the cute generation. They, they, they went low-tech, low-fi, and used the material of recycling and things like this, and, and uh, totally changed the spirit of art, how it is done. And this cute generation became part of the visual language used around the latest political and economic crisis in Iceland during the collapse of the major banks, 20% unemployment and public anger against the same system that sustained artists in the years before. The boom before the bust, before the pots and pan revolution in 2008, meant more disposable money like Iceland is experiencing now. There is an economical boom and that helps art. And, and art thrives best in certain kind of uh, corruption. And, and uh, when there is a, a crisis and when there is little money, um, well, as, as artists tend to survive, but they're not really making money. They make money really when things go uh, booming and you get certain kind of corruption, then money starts to leak into the community. And that is about the situation now. It's not that bad. But among the downsides of a boom is that prices go up and real estate in downtown Reykjavik, historically a hub of artist studios and galleries, gets too expensive for artists. This is a well-known trend for most hip areas of large cities, artists moving in, paving the way for the inevitable arrival of money, professionals, yuppies, tourists, whatever group you want to mention, moving in and displacing the artists. Nonetheless, Gottur outlines the effects Reykjavik can have. And Reykjavik is for sure a thing where some, some it's very fertile and lots of things happen. And it is very good for foreign students. Which they, they come here and they, 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 they really love to be here. But everyone should go abroad because also there is a, a word uh, uh, for in Icelandic for those who are stupid. They are the ones who stay at home. Heimskur, the real meaning of the word heimskur or stupid in Icelandic is for those who stay at home. The benefits of going abroad and having new first-hand experiences vary by persons, but Gottur tells me a story of a visit to Turkey with his students where the artistic similarities across borders became clear, as well as bringing up the question, is Iceland unique when it comes to the arts? So when I went to the, to the Contemporary Art Museum in, 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 in Istanbul with the students, oh, this is their version of Birger Andresson, oh, here I can see, uh, you know, Stengri Mayfair. Whoops! It's strange to see this. The same kind of, uh, of uh, atmosphere or spirit of time, same kind of zeitgeist, but just the different persons making their sort of uh, uh, making their fingerprints on it by doing it their way, but same idea, same things. And also, there's nothing really Icelandic about Icelandic art, but one thing. It is the way we do it. Nobody is as original as they think. Something is in the, you know, all the ideas, all the, you know, the, the spirit of times is just in the ether. You, know, you just pick those who are clever, ones who pick, the, pick them down and make something about it. The way you do it is what makes it Icelandic. You know, it is the way you are sort of uh, 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 molded by, by, by weather, which changes every 15 minutes. I stepped out of Gotur's studio. Straight into the madness of a spring that seemed unwilling to leave winter, with hail and wind and rain and sleet, perhaps part of the elements nurturing art in Iceland. If you want to learn more about some of the art we have talked about in this episode, 
visit our website, storiesfromtheatlantic.com. But we end this episode with a reminder from Kottur about the test of time when it comes to art. What you, because you need some space, five to ten years, to see what it really was, what photo is floating on top of it, who were the ones who told the truth. Because you can't really market good artists. They, they will always come forward sooner or later, and, and you can't hide talents. <laughs>